From KUER News in Salt Lake City, this is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. All Mormons know the story of Joseph Smith's first vision. It's really the origin story of the faith, a foundation for some unique LDS ideas. Like the idea that God and Jesus are not only separate beings, but both have bodies of flesh and bone. Smith said he knew this because he saw them, that both appeared to him in a grove of trees in western New York when he was 14 years old. Mormon President Gordon B. Hinckley once said the strength of Mormonism rests on the validity of Smith's vision. It happened or it didn't. If it didn't, Hinckley said, then this work is a fraud. So the stakes are pretty high. The problem is Smith told multiple versions of the story, and some of the details are different. So what does that mean? We're talking about the first vision today, the role it's played in church history, and how modern Mormons are thinking about it. Join us after the news. Stay connected with KUER throughout the day on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll bring you stories from our local news team along with program updates and features from NPR, BBC, and other network providers. Get the scoop on upcoming events, meet your favorite public radio personalities, and find out what's happening at the station behind the scenes by following KUER on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is Radio Westenberg for Brazio. Over the last few years, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been publishing essays about certain issues in their history that are tricky. Things like the priesthood ban for blacks, Joseph Smith's multiple wives, whether aspects of the Book of Mormon square with science. A few years ago, the Church published an essay about Joseph Smith's first vision. And this is a story all Latter-day Saints know because it's critical. It's in some ways the origin story of Mormonism. The essay explains what many rank-and-file members of the LDS Church did not know, that there's more than one version of the story. Recently, in fact a few weeks ago, one of the Church's general authorities told a global audience of LDS young people that it's a good thing there are different versions, that they tell, in his words, Joseph's consistent, harmonious story. But the fact is, some of the versions of the first vision, the earlier ones in particular, are significantly different than the one that became canonized. Skeptics say it proves he made it all up, or at least changed the story to make it fit to the moment. Today in the program, we're talking about the first vision, what the different accounts tell us about LDS church history and the LDS church of today. You can join us if you have Questions, 801-585-WEST is the number, 801-585-9378. Our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. Joining us today in the program is Patrick Mason. He's an historian and the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University in California. We should say he's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. His latest book is called Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. And he's joining us from a studio at uh, Claremont. And uh, Professor Mason, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Doug. John Turner is also with us, an historian of American religion who teaches at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. His new book is called The Mormon Jesus. He's joining us today from his office in Virginia. And uh, Professor Turner, welcome to you. Thanks very much, Doug. So, uh, Patrick Mason, let me begin with uh, this question question. How important is this story, the first vision, to Mormons and Mormonism? Well, it's hugely important for for contemporary Mormonism. I mean, this is the story that Mormons are raised on when they think about Joseph Smith, uh, the founding prophet of the religion. They think about him, first of all, as a young seeker, somebody who is confused about religion, doesn't know which church to join, and so after reading a verse in the Bible, decides to go and ask God directly. So he goes into a grove of trees near his home, and and as uh, the canonized account says, uh, he, he saw a vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And that's the account that Mormons are raised on. It's also the account that they tell people, usually the very first time that Mormon missionaries meet with anybody all around the world, uh, this is oftentimes uh, one of the very first things they tell them, the story of Joseph Smith going in and, and, and seeing God and Jesus, and then everything else about Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, the establishment of the Church, all the other doctrines uh, that, that come uh, out of Mormon 
Mormonism, they all stem from this moment in 1820. And so for contemporary Mormons, this is really at the heart of the stories that they tell about themselves and about their history. Why, if you're a Mormon missionary and you're trying to proselytize the Mormon faith, why would you tell the first vision story? What does it say that's so important as a message? Well, well, for Mormons, uh, the, the challenge is always how do you differentiate yourself from other Christian religions? Because lots of other people believe in God, lots of other people believe in Jesus Christ and read the Bible. And so, so Mormons have always had to essentially define their market share. What is their distinctive message that they have for the rest of the world? And this, uh, especially in the, in the late 19th and 20th century, this began with the story of Joseph Smith going in be, into the grove and, and having this vision, because the idea is that the other churches weren't sufficient. Uh, they were incorrect in some way, in, in, in some deep way. Yeah. And, and so God needed to call a new prophet in, in uh, modern days, and that that started with Joseph Smith. And so, so when missionaries tell this story, they're, they're actually loading a lot of meaning into this one moment when Joseph Smith receives this vision. First of all, that God calls prophets in this day, that Joseph Smith was that prophet. And, and, and so they make the logical conclusion, or they make the argument that the logical conclusion is that if, if Joseph Smith really did see God in Jesus, Jesus, if he was called as a prophet, then everything else that comes after that is true. And so the Book of Mormon and all the other teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are legitimate and authentic, and you should listen to our message. John Turner, uh, give us a sense of the stakes of this this question. You quoted President Gordon B. Hinckley, who said in 2002 that the whole uh, strength of Mormonism rests on the validity of this vision, that if it you know, on whether it did or it didn't happen. If it didn't, then, as as Hinckley put it, this work is a fraud. So the stakes are, are really high. Well, as you suggest, the Church itself has made those stakes very high. Uh, the first vision, or this early visionary experience, wasn't something that the earliest members of the Church were closely familiar with. Yeah. At first, it wasn't something that Joseph Smith talked about a great deal, but especially over the last hundred or so years, it's become incredibly important. And so to say that the truth of Mormonism rises or falls on whether or not these heavenly beings visited Joseph Smith, it does make those stakes very high. And then it, you know, it invites people to wrestle with that question. Mm. It's important to say, John Turner, that Joseph Smith came from a visionary household. Um, mm-hmm. There's this story of this of this man, a man named Solomon Chamberlain, who goes. He comes to Palmyra, where Joseph Smith and his family are living, and he goes to their house, and he sees Joseph Smith's brother Hiram Smith. I think this is the way the story goes, anyway. And he he asks, "Is there anyone here that believes in visions?" And Hiram Smith tells him, "Yes, we are a visionary house." Now, what does that mean? Would you talk about the importance of this idea of visions and the Smith House being a visionary house? Sure. Well, in the early 1800s, Americans were very divided on the validity of visions. There were a lot of what you might call more elite and educated Protestant ministers who thought that visions had ceased essentially with um, the biblical era. Uh, the New Testament era. But then there were lots of other Americans who reported visions of God, of Jesus, of Satan, of angels. And so it's a point of controversy. And Solomon Chamberlain had had visions of heavenly beings himself. And so when he heard from Hiram Smith that that the Smith household was a visionary household, that was very good news for him. So from the start, Joseph Smith's reports of visions brought derision from critics and skeptics, but those claims also thrilled other people. Patrick Mason, but but do do modern Mormons perceive that story, even though it's called a first division, as a vision or an actual happening? And I'm wondering what what the difference is. I mean, Mormons talk today about the fact that this thing happened. He saw this thing, but but it wasn't a dream. They don't claim it was a dream. It was a thing that actually happened. Right. You're, You're exactly right. I mean, when we use the language of vision, 
uh, we could mean different things by it. Was it simply a dream? Was it something that you had in your mind's eye or something that you imagined? I mean, we, we, could, we could think of lots of different ways that the people have visions. Uh, but Mormons don't believe that the first vision was something that Joseph Smith, however sincerely, just it, it just happened in his head or in some kind of uh, trance, uh, trance-like state that, that occurred as a result of prayer. Mormons typically don't believe that. They say it was an actual physical encounter between three people meeting in a grove of trees, Joseph Smith and God the Father and Jesus Christ. And they met just like you would meet any other uh, you know, three tangible physical beings. So, so for Mormons, they would generally, most uh, mainstream Mormons would disavow any notion that this was anything other than an actual physical historical event. John Turner, do we know whether that was Joseph Smith's intent, at least at first when he told this story, to say, this physical thing happened to me, or I, I had a dream or some really amazing ecstatic experience? It's a good question. Yeah, I think over time, he talked about the vision in more concrete and physical terms. So in the canonical official account that people are familiar with, he says that the beings defy description. He just sees brightness. He doesn't describe exactly what they looked like. Toward the end of his life, he's talking about the fact that they are very similar in appearance. He's talking adding some physical details about them. So over time, I think he does want to emphasize that, yes, these beings visited me. They, they appeared to me. They were there. And there were other visionaries in the same time period who took care to say that I saw these, you know, I saw these beings through spiritual eyes. Joseph Smith doesn't make distinctions like that, so I tend to agree. He's saying that these beings were really here in front of me, that it wasn't just a trick of the mind. One of the stories that you uh, tell in your new book, The Mormon Jesus, is that one of the last versions of this story that he's telling, and he relates this to to a man named Alexander Nebar, who went to visit him, um, Joseph Smith, in his home— he got really specific about what Jesus and God looked like, um, right. to the point that, um, he saw, as he put it, he saw a personage in the firelight, firelight complexion and blue eyes. Right. Um, so, so at first he's saying it's—the first version that he's telling, the first versions anywhere, that he's, it's, it's amazing, all this light, and it was indescribable, but he ends up with, with a god or gods who have blue eyes and fair skin— Pretty remarkable. It, you know, it, it, it is, I think he puts flesh um, on them as, as time passes. And maybe that stemmed from other images of the Savior that he might have encountered. Um, that, you know, they may have shaped the way he then recalled what, what he had seen. I think that's possible. But you know, those are very striking descriptions uh, later in his life. Patrick Mason, what do you make of those descriptions? Not just the, the, the kind of remarkable fact that God has blue eyes, but that um, that they were corporeal, that they had bodies. I mean, that's a significant element in Mormonism, isn't it? It, it is really significant, and, and it's true that the, the accounts change significantly and become more specific over time. The earliest ones, he, he does, he, he focuses on that they're in a pillar of fire or light. I mean, he, he seems in some ways wrestling, struggling to find adequate, adequate language to describe this, this really brilliant experience and this encounter with heavenly beings. And it's absolutely true that by the end of his life, in the 18, uh, early 1840s, he was teaching publicly that God and Jesus both had tangible, physical, uh, corporeal bodies of flesh and bone. Uh, that he says that if, if you met them, uh, you, could, you could touch them, you could feel them, just, just like another human being. Uh, and this becomes a, an important part of Mormon theology, that resurrected beings, which include God and Jesus, they do have tangi- tangible, physical, corporeal bodies. Now, that's, uh, it's, it's an interesting question as to whether or not or how he could have um, derived that teaching from his vision, uh, even 
if, if we were to assume that his uh, later reportings of the vision were correct, that he saw these two beings, because there's no sense that he touched them. There's no sense that in this encounter in the, in the Grove, even in the more specific ones, that they shook hands or anything like that. So how he was able to infer that they, in fact, had physical, tangible bodies uh, and not just kind of discrete spiritual bodies that could, that could appear in some way, that, that remains a, a little unclear. I want to go through a couple of these accounts, if we could, because the way they evolve seems at least instructive. Um, and you also get a sense that the motivation for for these things are are changing that you know you get in some versions he's joseph smith in the earlier versions he's just going to get forgiveness of his sins and then it's and then as they change sort of over time he's going for another purpose to find out which church to join and then to find out his direction for the future and what his you know marching orders would be i mean it gets very particular but let's talk about that first version of this thing which comes and we should point out he doesn't write it down or it's not written down for 12 years after it supposedly happened. This was in 1832. Um, John Turner, let's talk about this. So he, he goes t- into this grove and he is looking for forgiveness of his sins. And he doesn't see two beings. He just has this ecstatic moment with a person that he refers to as, as the Lord. Is, do, we, do we know much more than that? We well, don't know a great deal more than that. So in that account, he actually doesn't specifically say that he goes into a grove or into the woods right, to pray. Right, right. He says that he's convicted of his sins, and he is also concerned about the state of other churches. He says they've apostatized. So that you know that's there as yeah, well. Yeah. But first and foremost, he's worried about um, his sins, and he cries out unto God for mercy. There's nowhere else he can go. And he sees a pillar of fire or light. And then the Lord appears to him. And the Lord speaks unto him and says, Your sins are forgiven. And identifies himself as the Christian Savior, saying, I was crucified for the world, that everyone who believes on my name might find forgiveness and Mm -hmm. eternal life. And, you know, there's some more in that account as well. You know, the Savior... Uh, informs Joseph that he's going to return soon. There's going to be judgment to come. There's also, again, concern about apostasy. Now, it's been pointed out that that first, that first version of that account is, is not an atypical story of, from its time, that it's similar to these other Christian epiphanies. Um, and in some ways, it was like not that big of a deal. It was just this vision that he had, God for, forgave me, how significant was at least that first telling? Because there's some sense that it was just kind of a run-of-the-mill epiphany in some way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if any epiphany is totally run-of-the-mill, <laughs> but, you know, you're, I mean, if I had one like that, I'd be pretty excited. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, yeah, I think there are a lot of, there are a fair number of Americans who could have described a somewhat similar experience. Joseph Smith is not the only American in the early 1800 hundreds who's distressed about the state of the churches and the state of his own soul, and who has this ecstatic sort of experience in which Jesus forgives him. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it fits pretty well into the culture of evangelical Protestantism in the, in the early 1800s. Uh, Patrick Mason, why did it take 12 years for this first account to be written? Um... D- d- and that seems to convey some this idea that it wasn't that big of a deal for early Mormons anyway. Well, I, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. One is that Joseph Smith doesn't uh, it's it's not like he was keeping a diary during the 1820s and he just kind of forgot to mention this. Right, because he's, he's 14 uh, and 15. And yeah, he's, he's, he's 14 years old, uh, not uh, highly literate uh, in terms of his educational polish. And 
he it, it really isn't until the early 1830s that he starts to write very much at all. I mean, the the Book of Mormon translation happens uh, late in the 1820s, and it's really a remarkable production yeah. in terms of literary output compared to anything else that he's putting out. Uh, it's it's only in the late 1820s and early 1830s that we start to see uh, output from him, and it's generally another in, in in the voice of the Lord or what what he says is the translation of this ancient record in the Book of Mormon. And so uh, it's not entirely surprising to me that, it, that we don't have a firsthand account of this until the 1830s. That, that's pretty consistent with uh, the production of his own historical record and his maturation. Uh, but, but it's also true that that first one that he writes, it's, it's a private account. It's not like this is an account of him giving a sermon. Um, hey, 12 years ago, I, I had this incredible vision. Uh, it's, it's very private. Uh, and that's uh, consistent with the usage throughout his life that he doesn't share this story very much in, in public uh, and occasionally uh, in one-on-one conversation or in a group of small friends. Uh, but it's not something that he that he goes to for authority, for, for claims of authority, or even in terms of establishing doctrine as he's up uh, giving sermons. John Turner... Um when did the first vision become a big deal for Mormons then? When does it really become canonized and talked about and referred to? When, when does that happen? Well, it's a, I would say it's a process. Hmm. So that what is now the official account is published in a church newspaper in 1842. It, it, it is of some importance by the late 1840s, 1850s. It appears in in other Mormon publications. It's not something that really becomes a key part of uh, missionary efforts or the preaching of other church leaders in the mid-19th century. By the end of the 1800s, you can find some paintings, hymns written about it, and then in the early 1900s, it begins to take on a very uh, grand importance. Um, there's a great book by Kathleen Flake um, about the early 1900s period in which she talks about the first vision attaining an unprecedented importance um, during the presidency of Joseph F. Smith, Joseph mm. Smith's nephew. Yeah. So by that point, it becomes quite important. And, and I guess the reason is, the question is why. It's be- I think one of the things that you've talked about, and Kathleen Flake I guess gets at here too is that you have these certain unique and distinctive parts of Mormonism that are at that time falling by the wayside, like like polygamy, for example. And so this is one unique thing that Mormons, as you've put it, can sort of hang their hats on. I guess exactly. So there's there's a lot of things that the church needs to leave behind in the early 1800s, not only plural marriage, but also the idea of gathering. Kind of any pretensions to um, theocracy of you know really building a Zion society on earth. So there's a lot that's being left behind. And the church needs something new almost to truly really, uh, focus on in that time of change and uncertainty. And the first vision is something that's very attractive in that sense. You know, at the time that the church is leaving behind, uh, one of Joseph's last revelations um, on plural marriage, or at least part of it, it's a chance to kind of go back to the beginning, to Joseph's initial revelation. And in a way that doesn't, um, doesn't introduce some of those themes of you know, controversy from later in his life. But Patrick Mason, I want to get you on that question, too. And there's this question that comes up. It's 1842, as John Turner mentions, when it's first published. That's, what is that, two years before Joseph Smith is killed? What's mm-hmm. going on? It, does, does the fact that it's published at this point mean that Joseph Smith is trying to establish his authority, deal with, I mean, do we know what was going on at the time that was significant that could tell us why this story is published? In 1842. Well, yeah, it was published in a church periodical, but it was part of a uh, serial history of the church that had been uh, 
that the church began to compile in the late 1830s, Joseph Smith along with some of his clerks and scribes, because they felt a sense of history. I mean, they, they, they thought this was a really big deal, that, that God had restored his church in the last days and had, and had uh, sent angels and new revelation and new prophets and all these kinds of things. So, so they felt a, a kind of sacred duty to record this history. And so it was beginning in the late 1830s that they started to write that down, and then it becomes serialized in, in the church uh, newspaper beginning in the 1840s. There, and that account, the canonized account, is heavily imbued with the notion of persecution. If, hmm. if you read that can, what is now the canonized account called Joseph Smith History, I mean, the word persecution comes up, I mean, over and over and over again, or some variant of it. It's clear that after the Mormons' experience in Missouri, where they're driven out of the state, uh, there's and, and that's about the same time that Joseph Smith originally uh, writes this this account, this formalized account. There's there's a sense that we are besieged, we are under attack, and this goes all the way back. In, in fact, in that canonized account, he talks about how how Satan tries to get him not to utter a prayer, mm-hmm. and and so from the very mm-hmm. beginning, there's a sense that there are forces of darkness, there are forces of evil that oppose this work of restoration that God is trying to do, but that in the end, God will break through, light and revelation will break through, and we will triumph over our foes in, in the end. So it does resonate with a lot of themes that are important for Joseph Smith and the saints in the, in the late 1830s and early 1840s. Does Satan appear in the first one, in 1832? No. No, there's there's uh, there's no sense of that. That it uh, it does appear in the 1835, which is the second firsthand account that we have from Joseph Smith. Uh, a sense that his uh, I, I don't have the language in front of me, but there's a sense uh, that his tongue is is swollen or stopped. Um, there is a sense of opposition beginning in the 1835 account. Patrick Mason is with us. He chairs the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University. John Turner, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. You can join us, 801-585-WEST, our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. We need to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about Mormon founder Joseph Smith's first vision. It's what Latter-day Saints call it. It's this kind of origin story for Mormonism, the moment that propelled Smith to start this new faith. Smith claimed God and Jesus appeared to him when he was a 14-year-old boy. Both God and Jesus appeared to him. That's important for Mormons because they don't believe in a trinity. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. The problem, though, is Smith told different versions of this story. Some of the details are significantly different. We're talking about all of that today with John Turner, an associate professor of religious studies at George Mason University. He's the author of a new book called The Mormon Jesus, a biography. And uh, Patrick Mason is back with us. He chairs the Mormon Studies program at Claremont Graduate University. So what happens to—so you get a version in 1832 and then a version in 1835 and then um, one in 1838 and one in 1842, and then there are five other versions, sort of secondhand versions. So what happens to the other versions of the story? The the, the LDS Church said in an essay that they were just forgotten, basically, until the 1960s when a couple of people were working on these academic papers. Um, John Turner, what do we know about that? Is that— is that fair to say? Is that accurate to say? They just people just forgot about them. Well, we know at least that the 1832 version that we've been talking about, that earliest handwritten account, that was in the church historian's office. We know at least that it was examined from time to time. But you're right; it was largely forgotten, or at least unknown. Um, and you know, by the late 1960s, uh, that version clearly was known. There was a church member, church employee, I think, who published um, an essay on the First Division in which he discussed that version at some length. So for about 50 years, you know, it's at least been known, uh, if people wanted to find out about it, that um, other versions existed. But I think, as you said at the outset, it's just really in the last several years that... um, 
these the existence of these different versions is you know gaining a, a wider audience. Patrick Mason, did the church try to hide the story? Do we know? I don't think so. I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, during much of that period in the late 19th and uh, in the first half of the 20th century, the church did have a lot of documents. Uh, but it was not a professionally staffed or maintained uh, historian's office or or archive. I mean, it was uh, it was very lightly staffed and uh, uh, rather uh, unprofessionally staffed. I mean, you know, there were enthusiasts and, and there were church uh, there was a church historian and others, uh, but it was not the archive that we think of today. It was not a professional archive in any sense. And so there were all kinds of documents in there. I think it was one of those kinds of things that the church didn't even really know what all it had in there. Uh, And this is true of a lot of private archives and private collections. And uh, so I don't think that there was any massive cover-up. Uh, as John said, once, once the church uh, historian's office did begin to professionalize in the 1960s, uh, we saw this and lots of other documents come to light, and historians started publishing on them. Uh, we've, we've known about this and many other uh, documentary issues in, in Mormon history for, for 50 years. Wait, wait, but who's, it really who's, is. but who's we? We we the, the historical community yeah. that uh, generally has been professional historians and the, um, the but internet that's different has from the rank and file right that's different from the that's rank exactly and file. right yeah and 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 so these articles were published uh, in in public journals like the Journal of Mormon History or Dialogue a Journal of Mormon Thought uh, the church didn't attempt to to squelch the publication of those articles it didn't uh, you know seek to to say no you can't say that because these were church employees oftentimes mm-hmm. who were publishing these essays. Uh, and so they were out there, but again, you know, how many people read these uh, historical journals? Not that many. And so it was the internet that democratized this knowledge and that made it possible to find it not by going through and, and reading a, an old journal article, a 30-page journal article, but by, by a quick Google search, you could uh, find out pretty quickly yeah. about these multiple accounts. So, so that's, I think that's changed a lot over the past 10 or 15 years, the accessibility of information through the internet. But it seems like some could say, some could say, I'll say, it seems like <laughs> um, you're, you could be perceived as hiding this in plain sight. The, the essay from 2014 says uh, the different, as you say, the different versions of the story have been, as they put it here, discussed repeatedly in church magazines, in works printed by the church, by Mormon scholars. And and I know that's true, but there also weren't different versions of this story in talks from LDS conference. They didn't appear in church seminary curricula. They didn't appear in church Sunday school lessons, which again raises that question of how rank and file Latter-day Saints before the internet would have really known about this story. John Turner? I think— Or Patrick, it doesn't matter. Go ahead. Well, I'll just say I, you're absolutely right about that, and, and I think that's something we can we can look at as the uh, the role and responsibility of church leadership in giving a full and transparent account of, of church history. I mean, if if they knew these things, if their employees knew these things, if they if they were published periodically in even some of the church's own publications, why didn't it filter into official narratives and discourses? I mean, there's a very famous quote by by a now deceased church leader that he says, "Not all things that are true are very useful," and I think um, hmm. as a historian myself, I think that's a somewhat unfortunate sentiment. Uh, there's, uh, I, I think if Mormonism claims to be a true religion, it shouldn't be afraid of, of dealing with uh, whatever facts become available through the documentary record. I think that the church is moving in that direction now, but there was a period in the late, late 20th century, and, and really for most of Mormon history, where they were more interested in a, a rather controlled uh, narrative about church history that, uh, that was clean. And history usually isn't clean. History usually is messy. And, but, but, but that wasn't the way the church leadership approached it. John yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I would say that, you know, the church has an awful lot invested in the official narrative. So I don't think—I I think the church saw a little interest in intentionally muddying the waters, uh, so to speak. But it's not as if there's anything— devastating in the early account, earliest account of the first vision. Mm-hmm. But once the other accounts became known, it became, th- this became an important um, 
means of criticism for critics of the church to say that Joseph Smith changed his story, um, that maybe he made the whole thing up. So in anti-Mormon literature, you can find a lot of interest in these different narratives, yeah. um, you know, beginning from the late 1960s. Uh, so it, I think it was a pretty tricky thing for the church to figure out what to do with these different narratives. And as Patrick suggested, as everyone has more access to things on the Internet, I think in the last several years the church has very much recognized that it is actually in its best interest um, to uh, put the material out there itself and to interpret it um, in a faithful manner for church members. What do you two think about the essay itself? Um, it doesn't seem to address some of the issues we've been talking about today. The the account, as J- Joseph Smith put it early on, seeing many angels, that they don't really address that. They don't really get to the contradictory accounts that uh, that uh, for more than 100 years, no one really n- knew some of those, that it took 12 years to write it. Um, the, the the essay on the subject says the various accounts of the first vision tell a consistent story, though naturally they differ in emphasis and detail. So what do you make of the essay? What does it say and what does it sort of leave out? Well, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that essays like that are not written to, you know, satisfy you know, the standards of academic history, so to speak. Mm. You know, they're written for, you know, really a pastoral reason to, um, you know, to help church members in particular make sense of this material. And I think, you know, in terms of the discrepancies among the versions, what, what I would say in, you know, in maybe a somewhat charitable way is there's, there's enough material that's consistent among the accounts, I think, to reassure uh, believers, and there are enough discrepancies uh, to kind of reinforce the skepticism <laughs> of outsiders and doubters. Yeah. You know, they, you know, both both sides of that coin really are the case. So, so, yeah, so I mean, believers and non-believers can get something from that. I think I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that consistent is in the eye of the beholder. And and where, where where the church wants to to tell a narrative of consistency, and as John says, you, you can find it. I mean, there are clearly some through lines in all of the accounts where where you can tell uh, or construct a harmonious account. And this is what the church has done, I, I think, in in a really effective way in the most recent video that it's produced that it shows every day, multiple times a day, in the uh, newly remodeled Church History Museum in downtown Salt Lake City. Rather than relying only on the canonical account, it has actually taken uh, snippets of all of the accounts and and then created a harmony and and then shows this this video but outside of the the room where you watch the video they actually have published all of the the accounts and you can flip through and read them all for yourself and then they highlight the the parts that they took and quoted for the movie so so this is the church trying to say these are the facts. We're not going to argue with the facts. We believe that it tells a consistent narrative that can be harmonized. Uh, but as John says, obviously, uh, other, other people see it differently. But how do you harmonize a story that had angels at first and no longer, and that had one personage but no longer? I mean, how do you, I don't get that. How do you harmonize that? Well, the church is, is, is going to say, and, and uh, friendly scholars are going to say, look, anytime you tell a story, you're going to tell it differently, especially if you tell it over time. Uh, this is just natural. And they would draw on a lot of uh, scholarly literature on memory and on storytelling that, that actually affirms this fact. I mean, if, if anything, they might say, if you were to tell this the same story the exact same way with the exact same words over time, that might be what's suspicious. That naturally over time, depending on who you're talking to, the context, the audience, all these kinds of things, uh, it's just going to come out a, a little bit differently. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, that, fair enough. And, uh, but it also leaves plenty of, of grist to say, yeah, where did the angels go? And, uh, 
and what happened, uh, how did we all of a sudden get a second person? Now, the church reads that, that first and, and second account in a particular way and says, well, he was just focusing on Jesus because Jesus is the one who spoke to him mostly, hmm. and his understanding of what was happening there changed over time as his understanding of the church and his role as a prophet changed over time. Uh, I think, if anything, this speaks to the probability that uh, the, the first vision, whatever that visionary account was, it probably wasn't determinative for a lot of Joseph Smith's th- own theology, that I think he, his, his theology came from other sources, from his other revelations and other huh. kinds of things, and then he read that back into that early visionary experience. Well, I want to ask you about that, and John Turner, I want to hear you on this point, too, because it, it, that is one of, that's the sort of principal discrepancy that you have in the earlier version, one personage, and then you have two personages, and it's critical to Mormon theology that there's not a trinity, that God and Jesus are separate that they're corporeal, which we talked about before. They have flesh right. and bone. Um, so, so what what Patrick Mason is saying is that that story wasn't wasn't told later to establish this theology, theological point. Um, it just it wasn't connected. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I don't think that Joseph was in any of these versions telling a story to make a theological point about the Trinity. Hmm. You know, toward the end of his life, it was very important to him that God was a God of flesh and bones, of body parts and passions. And that was a clear descent from kind of typical Protestant theology. And, you know, I think you get, you get glimmers of that in some of the later First Vision accounts. But that, that really wasn't the point of the story he was telling. I think the point of the canonical account is of apostasy and then the chosen prophet. But I, I want to say one broader thing about um, the church's essay and this whole idea of reliability. I mean, I just think it's, it's rather fallacious for us to presume that we can know with any certainty what Joseph Smith saw or didn't see when he was 14, year old, 14 years old in 1820. We, just, we don't have any access to the religious experience of any other individual. We don't have direct access. All we have is narratives. In this case, we have a few narratives, and that makes it even harder. But if anything, that reminds us of just how elusive uh, those sorts of experiences are to us. That's John Turner, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Patrick Mason is with us. He chairs the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University. We need to take another quick break, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about Joseph Smith's first vision with John Turner, an associate professor of religion, uh, religious studies at George Mason University, has a fascinating new book called The Mormon Jesus, a biography. And uh, Professor Turner, we'll get you back on to talk about this. Um, we'll get to a few of these details in a moment, but it's, it's uh, extraordinary. And uh, Patrick Mason is also with us, chairs the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University. His latest book is called Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Let's uh, take a call. Uh, This is from Tony, who's been waiting a long time in Salt Lake. Tony, sorry for the wait. Welcome. No problem. Um, I have a question. If if Recently, there was a letter that was put out, uh, cesletter.com, which also discusses the three different visions, but it also went into detail about the current release of the DNA uh, regarding the Lamanites, which Joseph Smith had always said were the American Indians, that he that's where God came and appeared to the Lamanites. Well, DNA shows that the Lamanites, the Indians, are not from their, uh, the Middle East. It was more the Asian. And then also regarding the artifacts of that time, where Tony, Joseph Tony, I don't want to, I don't want to adjudicate all those points. These are the points okay. that the church takes on in terms of the essay. Uh, I, but we get your point. But get to the question because I know you have one. Well, you know, if it's based on his visions, then how can where is the foundation? I don't see understand where I, I've had a son who's been 
very much into the church, on a mission and everything. And he has recently discovered all of this uh, misguided information that he feels the church is hidden from him, and he feels that he has been used Hmm. in a fraudulent manner. And how, uh, you know, how can the church justify this when there's so many different, uh, different visions that this young man, Joseph Smith, uh, had. Yeah. Okay. I, that's that's a terrific point, uh, John Turner and Patrick Mason. You sort of dealt with this a little bit earlier, but to this idea that the church now in an internet age is having to confront issues that rank and file members didn't know before, like a first vision, like DNA evidence related to the Book of Mormon, those kinds of things. Uh, Patrick Mason, you start. What do you? What? Um, what do you? How do you respond? I suppose to Tony. Well, I think the experience of of her son has been echoed by many, many other people that um, throughout its history, the LDS Church and its leadership has set up a narrative of absolute ironclad fact. And there has been a standard and uh, a fairly controlled narrative about church history in which you hear these kinds of statements, uh, like we cited earlier, that it's it's all true or it's not. Yeah. And this is exactly the way it happened, and if it didn't happen this way, then it's then you can just throw the whole thing out. Well, in, in doing that, the church leadership has set itself up for, for when we do get some of these things that, that lead to, to questions in people's minds, in which the documentary record, the historical record that we cannot argue with, does show uh, a more diverse and complicated experience, then that leads a lot of people to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, I thought you said it was all or none. Uh, I, th- I thought you said I could put all my trust in this account, in this story that, that, that you've been telling and that I've been telling as I went out on a Mormon missionary, and now it seems like it's all a house of cards and, and it falls apart. And so, so as John said earlier, this essay on the First Vision and the many other essays and other efforts that the Church uh, has put out recently, it's, it's a, in some ways a rearguard effort uh, in order to address that and to say, uh, you're right, it's complicated, we need to change our narratives a little bit, and uh, uh, while still holding on to the essential, what they believe is the essential truth of, of the uh, experience mm-hmm. and of the accounts. And so the Church is in a tricky position right now because for most of its history, it did set up this kind of all-or-none proposition that frankly um, is, uh, is it can be tough to maintain in the face of a complicated historical record. That doesn't mean that you have to throw it all out, but when, when it was all black and white, and if you introduce any shades of gray, then, then it doesn't look like it's, it's uh, quite so clean. This, this idea of change, John Turner, gets us to a point you make in your book, and you write about the fact that um, Joseph Smith wanted people to have these visions. He wanted them to actually see the face of Christ and that that early Mormons thirsted to see Jesus. But you also say that over time, these early Mormon forms of religious ecstasy changed. They subsided. And by the 20th century, visions and revelations had changed. Would you talk about that? Sure. Well, you know, in the earliest period of the Church, Joseph Smith wasn't telling Church members to believe in his vision. He was telling them that they should expect to see the Savior, you know, maybe at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, or maybe individually, if they led righteous and obedient lives, they too could see, uh, they, they too could see the Savior's face. Um, over time, the church became a bit more uncomfortable with individuals seeking their own visitations from heaven and placed a much greater emphasis on church members believing in Joseph Smith's vision. You know, the the call that you took and that question made me think about one of the lessons of the first vision, and forgive me for sounding too much like a Protestant, But one of the messages of the first vision is that you shouldn't place your trust in institutions or in other religious leaders, that if you're unsure of what you should do, you should ask God for yourself. Um, And I think, actually, you know, that's a bit of a subversive message, but it also points, I think, to the broader appeal of 
uh, the Joseph Smith story. You know, all these different versions aside, uh, it's a story about, you know, a very American story about someone seeking the truth for himself, no matter what other people say. So does it matter to the Mormon story? And Gordon B. Hinckley says it's crucial. It's the stakes are really high. Do you where do you end up? Um, John Turner, you've pointed out that there are, as you said earlier, there are all kinds of, you know, contradictory accounts in Christian scripture. There's different accounts of the of the um, of the creation in the Old Testament and the New Testament has all kinds of contradictions. Christians have always been able to sort of work that stuff out. Do you figure Mormons will be able to work this out, too? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, ordinary um, Christian believers don't pay too much attention to the discrepancies among the various gospel accounts of Jesus' life and, and so forth. I think, despite the fact that we've found plenty to talk about, I'm not sure rank-and-file Mormons you know, I'm not sure their faith is going to rise or fall on this particular issue. Hmm. There's a lot of hard issues yeah. um, in the 19th century uh, history of the Church. Um, I'm not sure this one is the hardest, and I don't think ultimately uh, a vision is easily falsifiable or provable. Patrick Mason, what do you think? I'd, I'd agree with everything that, that John just said, that... Um, it's it's really the, the the facts that we have them and and the historical evidence as we have it allows for multiple interpretations and it certainly allows for a critical interpretation that says that Joseph Smith is changing his story and making it up but I think it's also perfectly reasonable uh, and consistent to make a faithful interpretation as well uh, the way that the the church is um, is striving to do in recent years and so. The, the 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 basic claim of the church is is for people to find things out for themselves and if anything as, as John said that's the power of the Joseph Smith uh, narrative is that a person can get a kind of direct unmediated experience with God that can lead them uh, to truth and in a lot of ways that becomes the the main story of Mormonism that's really the main thing that missionaries tell people that's the main thing you hear in Mormon congregations is that people can pray directly to God receive revelation receive inspiration by the Holy Spirit uh, if anything that that narrative of, of Joseph Smith is uh, far more powerful than any of the intricacies that we've talked about today. It's Patrick Mason. He's an historian and the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University in California. Professor, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And John Turner is an historian of American religion who teaches at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. His new book, The Mormon Jesus, A Biography. John Turner, thanks to you. Thanks, Doug. Radio West, a production of KUER News, or thanks to Susan Anderson. We have technical direction from Tim Slover. Video West, produced by Josh Weathers. Radio West, produced by Benjamin Bombard and Elaine Clark. I'm Doug Fabrizio.